LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Mark Stavish, who joins us to discuss discipline, responsibility and personal freedom in the age of coronavirus. You can help cover my operating costs by visiting LegalizeFreedom.com. That's Legalize-Freedom.com and you can spell Legalize with an S or a Z and click on the Donate button. You can also follow me at Facebook.com forward slash LegalizeFreedom youtube.com forward slash legalizefreedom1 and twitter at legalizefreedom. If anything in these times is not what it at first appears to be, it is the coronavirus crisis. Millions worldwide are struggling to comprehend what is happening and how the world around them, seemingly so safe, secure and full of certainties, could have been turned on its head practically overnight. But if your worldview flows only from the gaggle of government, media, corporate and other trans-global organisations battling to control the narrative, then the present turmoil is simply impossible to fully understand. Behind the rampant media manipulation, mass hysteria and the deadliest pandemic of all, fear, the key to the current crisis is more likely to be found in the hidden depths of the human psyche and within the forces that lie beyond. This global panic may well serve as cover for massive wealth transfers, draconian attacks on our freedoms and unprecedented centralization of power and authority. However, like it or not, the struggle to survive and preserve the power to shape our own future will require a spiritual dimension. There has never been a greater potential for spiritual movements to make an impact than there is right now. And it's going to now be in a matter of being a viable example and leader, a viable role model. This is now when it's time to move. Hello and welcome, Mark, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to be back. Uh, What has it been, about a year and a half or Uh, so? It was October the 1st, 2018, actually. Okay, so almost not. Yeah, you see, about 18 months then, right? Yeah, well, that's that's when our interview was published. Now, Today, we're going to be talking about the coronavirus 2020 crisis uh, or opportunity, depending on how you wish to look at it. But before we jump into our talk, just for listeners who aren't familiar with you, if you could just let folks know a little bit about your background and your work in general. Uh, Well, as many uh, people know, and very easy to find out about myself, my biography is online. I've been doing this for over 40 years. Uh, I grew up in an environment that was related to uh, some of the early 20th century esoteric movements as well as German folk magic. Uh, so uh, my great uncle was an astrologer, hypnotist. He belonged to many of the great organizations and I have, you know, his uh, 
you know, his letters that he wrote to folks, uh, names that people would recognize the great authors of the period. So, um, and his father, of course, was was well versed in German folk magic, including the, the, what's called the sixth and seventh books of Moses, which comes out of the German Faustian tradition. So uh, I'm pretty familiar with uh, occultism in a variety of uh, fashions and schools. And of course, I myself was involved in a variety of esoteric movements and founded the Institute for Hermetic Studies. Uh, in 1998, and we've been going since then. And we're going to be having our third annual conference this year, despite the virus, because we're going to be doing it virtually. Excellent. Okay, well, as mentioned, we're going to be talking about the current global situation, but we're going to be maybe trying to look at it from a few different angles, consider some different levels. Perhaps there's more to this than meets the eye or indeed any of the other senses. Now, I have to say that this is not something, for example, like 9-11 that just suddenly happened. I mean, clearly there was a build-up to 9-11, but in terms of this viral outbreak, you know, it's been rolling for a few months. So it wasn't like a complete surprise to anybody who's paying attention, but it seems to have gone from being a Chinese problem to being a global problem extremely swiftly. My initial gut reaction was basically, if there's anything in my lifetime that it is, it is not what it at first appears to be, it's this. Well, I, I think that's uh, accurate because fundamentally the Chinese lie. And uh, they lie about almost everything. And I know quite a few people who have done business over there and they've done business with them. And that's just the way it is. And, um, well, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I mean, so, so you're not exactly getting information that you can make educated decisions upon from the Chinese regarding this. That said, uh, this should not have been a surprise to anyone who followed astrology. Anyone who follows mundane astrology and is a decent mundane astrologer would have known that something big was on the, on the horizon. And in 2017 or 18, at our blog Vox Hermes, I posted an essay, and you can just Google it, you guys, The Alchemical Apocalypse in You, which specifically quotes a French um, astrologer, mundane astrologer, one of the best, who stated, and we have it in there, that the period of 2020 to 2022 would be a period of near total chaos. So uh, I have to say, people like to say, no, who could have imagined that planes would have crashed into the towers? You know, well, did they ever hear of kamikazes? No. Hmm. So what we, we see happening is constantly this reframing of things. No one could have imagined this. No, no, that's not true. That, that's simply not true. And if you, you look at what was happening, something big was coming. Astrologers should have noticed it, but they didn't. And this goes to something I've been pointing out for the last five or six years now, much to the annoyance of many of your listeners, many of the audience who reads my books. But when I look at all of the predictions made by fundamentalist Christians from the early 80s until now, they score. When I look at the predictions of the, you know, Western Buddhist converts, New Agers, all this stuff, uh, they don't score. So what's going on here where the people who supposedly have all this great psychic insight, either through geomancy, astrology, uh, crystals, tarot, uh, great awakenings, constantly and consistently as a group miss what's happening in current events? Well, we're going to be dealing with a lot of the esoteric dimensions of this as we walk through this. 
Um, as far as no one could have seen it coming, quote unquote, there's a couple of things there. One, the, the aspects you were talking about in terms of prediction, but in terms of, you know, conceivable scenarios, well, I mean, you know, science fiction, for example, and sci-fi horror is replete with potential scenarios that, you know, some of which we've, we've seen unfold. I mean, you mentioned the idea of people uh, crashing planes into buildings for nefarious purposes was hardly new, but people seem to that, you know, people seem to forget. But if you look back, I mean, I've, I've actually read a, a couple of interesting articles in recent days looking at this through the lens of science fiction in terms of like how much science fact starts out as science fiction. And that doesn't have to be the sort of uh, Jetson science fiction where, you know, the great shiny techno utopian future for us. It can also be the dark side of things. And I, I think that in some of the dystopian science fiction, certainly from the 60s and 70s in particular, I think that collectively that we were beginning to sort of grok something about possible futures. And I, I think there was, an, as much as it was taken as entertainment and fantasy, I think there was some kind of gathering fear or understanding that we were trying to send a message to ourselves as well. And a, a bit like almost like a collective dream, you know, that this is something that was possible. So the idea that you could look at what's happening now and say, oh my God, there was nothing like this has ever come. You know, we only have to go back a few years to the last time there was a, a major viral epidemic, if not pandemic. I mean, these things happen regularly, uh, if not often. Well, that's the point, and and the, the point is also that esoteric or spiritual practices are supposed to make us clearer, you know, uh, to make us more filled with light, literally, in which we can see and perceive things that are happening within us at the very moment, but also in the short term and in the medium term and the long term horizon. And a few months is really a short term. You know, it's not long term. It's not even medium. And you know, it, people have to look at their spiritual practices and say, you know, what benefit am I getting out of this? First of all, why am I doing it? What am I supposed to get from it? What am I actually getting from it? That was, you know, the question we, rose, we, we raised in the book, uh, Egregores. You know, what are you told is going to happen when you join this group? And then what actually happens? You know, are you getting the what you've expected from it? And when, so when we look at spiritual practices, particularly in a domain that claims to have access to occult, hidden, secret, uh, insights, wisdom, or vision, uh, that needs to step up. And I, I, I don't talk about my own experiences because generally they're, they're something that you don't do. I was raised that way that, you know, silence is, you know, the, the four axioms of the Sphinx and the last one is silence. However, there are a few things I, I have said before and because I have said them before, I will say them again because they're, they're not a secret anymore. And I simply use these as examples and as a as a, a a benchmark so your listeners understand. You know, when the back when the uh, Israeli uh, prime minister was assassinated that morning, I woke up, you know, knowing that something terrible was going to happen to the Israel in Israel to the peace process. It's something horrible. But you know, what do you do? I mean, you're actually going to call the Israeli embassy and say, you know, I think there's someone's going to try and kill one of your uh, politicians. They do that every day. Okay, so that doesn't really work. But the feeling was the important part. And I always remember that feeling. Okay, so now, you know, we go forward. Uh, when 9-11 happened that morning, when I woke up, I, I woke up from a dream. And the dream was of uh, uh, a lion breaking out of a basement window and leaping up about two-thirds of the way 
to a tall, thin, flat-storied building or flat-roofed building. Okay, and then everything was red. So immediately, I thought of you know the uh, larger city because I, I don't live in a large city, and I thought, okay, something very unpleasant is going to happen. And of course, a lion is the Egyptian goddess Sekhmet of war, and five of these fellows were Egyptian, so we're, we're told. Um, and of course, that morning I, I had deep concerns over several of my friends who who lived in New York and kind of knew they were okay, but the one just happened to sleep in. Otherwise, he would have been on the subway platform underneath uh, uh, that that was underneath one of the buildings. So you, you have to pay attention to these things. The same with the, the tsunami that hit, uh, what was it, Indonesia a few years back. That same morning, same thing. Now, of course, these were somewhat after the fact. Or they were so far in motion that they were very difficult to stop. And other uh, people have done research, and I don't know how good it is because I don't really follow it that much, but you know, they claim to notice certain spikes in dream phenomena or recordings, voluntary recordings as these things happen. So there comes a point where the energy is in motion, and it's very difficult to stop, if at all. And, and of course, he's right. But the reality is I, I had that impression. I had that experience. I was able to recognize that was happening and then move forward with it. The same last year when we were working on the conference, it was, uh, I believe it was November, sometime in November, early December. And I, as I thought about the conference, and I thought, oh, it's a few months away. I got to make sure everything's lined up, our, our vendors, our speakers, our, our, pay, our sponsors, all of this. And all I got was like I was walking into a wall. And it was a blank slate, a blank white wall, like a whiteboard. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I mean, that's like the conference isn't going to come off. Right? So, And for a brief moment, I actually thought of of disease. And I thought, well, who knows? Maybe someone's going to be sick and we're going to have to fill in a slot or something. So I thought, well, I'll just double up my efforts. I called everyone, made sure everyone was still on board. Come January, I did it again, and the same feeling kept coming back even stronger. You know, and then when we get the notice of what's happening in China, then I knew what it was immediately. Okay, and and I think this goes back to, uh, you know, if you're doing this work, you need to have a, a develop a certain sense of sensitivity to what is going on within yourself, but also your environment, and from that, be able to, at some point, not immediately, not in the first five years or ten years or what have you, but at some point, if you're working on a system uh, of astrology or, uh, we'll say, and not, not so much numerology maybe, but tarot or, or, or scrying, uh, that any kind of psychic work, this should not have been a surprise. I feel that our view of who we are our relationship to others, uh, to the universe at large, and our relation, relationship with ourselves, our own inner relationship, is uh, got a lot to do with where we find ourselves now in terms of the human journey. And I think that this superficial view of who we are and our place in the universe is, to use a big picture sort of uh, terminology, one of the reasons why so many people are so confused by what is happening now can make so little sense of it, even when when all they really have to work with is the face value story, is the you know the media presentation or some limited first hand experience, talking with other people trying to understand what's going on. The other the different levels that you're alluding to, you cannot understand events unfolding 
in the narrow materialist context. And it's one of the reasons why it doesn't make any sense. And that's why it's such tremendous cognitive dissonance that people will experience as they try and take two and two and they end up with five and they, they force square facts into round holes of understanding, as it were. And that's what we see every day now. And that's one of the, the things that I found very early on in life was if something doesn't fit uh, or doesn't appear to fit, don't just tuck it away. Don't bury it. Just sit with it, uh, even if that's a fearful process at first. Well, I think you have three points there. And the first is being comfortable with ambiguity. Yes. You just have to be comfortable with ambiguity. And and that's just the reality of life. The second is when you're dealing with, we'll say, the average person, the common man, that is in astrology, that would be whatever is represented by the moon. Um, that situation is no different than day one. I mean, it's it's kind of, we could say welcome to the Kali Yuga, uh, you know, welcome to Samsara, I mean, whatever. But that's that's just the way it is. Uh, the situation of people not being able to make sense of things and being confused is the nature of the experience of going from ignorance to wisdom. Now, no matter what model you want to use, involution, evolution, whatever language you want to use, samsara, nirvana, and duality, unity, eternity, is really a better word, not unity, eternity. Um, so that's that's really not our audience either. In theory, that's not the people who are listening to this broadcast. In theory, the people who are listening to this broadcast are people who have undertaken what we call the path of return. They've undertaken a spiritual journey and are on a, a, hopefully have a practice uh, that they do that helps them to better understand themselves, to self-realize. And from that self-realization or self-knowledge, then to put that into action. Remember, we live in Asaya in Kabbalah, the world of action, and to or and, you know karma is action, okay, act, cause, effect, act, and result. You know we live in this world of action, and to actualize ourselves, not just to have a nice idea about what we could be, a nice philosophical notion. I mean, it's a start, it's a framework, but that's a beginning, not an end. And one of the problems is, is that these beginnings, these ideas, have been co-opted. Instead of people acting on them in terms of a practice, they have become uh, heavily politicized. So we see the churches substituting social action and justice for actual prayer and meditation. People leave the church because they don't teach them how to pray or how to meditate or how to have direct experience of the divine, you know, so they say. And then they go to these metaphysical groups and they run into the same doctrines of political correctness that have torn apart a lot of orders in the last two to three years that have nothing to do with personal experience. And so what we see is a notion, a projection onto the universe a set of values that don't exist outside of the human condition or or don't really exist outside of a specific narrow framework of the human condition. You see, th th this is the difficult part. I, I think trying to get through to folks that you, you have to, when you, when you go down the path, the path of realization, you're going to have experiences that don't just disrupt your day-to-day -day notions of yourself and your place in the cosmos, but it's really going to disrupt a lot of wonderfully cherished notions about the way things should or, or ought to be, yeah, particularly if you're doing it right. 
Because if we say alchemy is like nature, Taoism is like nature, all these things are like nature, well, when you look at nature, nature is pretty rough. And this is an aspect of, of reality that the esoteric orders um, have really done a, a good job of sidestepping and avoiding to the best of their ability. We, there's a widespread feeling and idea for a long time. It was maybe an aspiration before it was anything like a reality. And it's understandable, a human need for security, for safety. And when you achieve degrees of that, then it's easy to get security. It's easy then to begin to believe that the world is safe or should be safe. And when it appears not to be the case, that's psychologically very disruptive because it goes against the sort of meta-narrative most of us have gone through life with and have well, and for generations before us. And so that's a, that's a pervasive idea. And that leads to people, you know, again, that I can't understand this. This isn't supposed to happen. Uh, why didn't they stop this? How can this be? Never mind the fact that at any given point, even go back to December, uh, as far as the virus was concerned, people were watching television news reports and just going, oh my God, look what's happening in China, a deserted city, people can't go to work, you know, the, people can't go to supermarkets, they can't go to car showrooms and get a new car. Oh, imagine such a thing. Anyway, what's on the uh, weather channel? I don't know. On to the <laughs> next thing. Oh, well, I think that's it. You know, that um, the ability to extrapolate things. I mean, as I said, I made some predictions when that was happening back in February and March. And I told my wife certain things that would happen. And she's brilliant. She has a PhD from Brown in microbiology. You know, and so do a lot of her friends. They're all scientists. But it amazes me how suddenly stupid they get uh, when they're faced with uh, social issues. And I don't mean that in the classical sense of the indoctrination, but how society works, how people actually think and function, how governments really work, and particularly economies. It's it's stunning how economically illiterate many people, particularly in the uh, magical community, are. I mean, they have a lot of things to complain about, and they're very good at pointing things out that are wrong. But actually understanding how things function is another story altogether. That most of them just don't. They, at least not the ones who, who get make a lot of noise, I should say. Those who make the most noise often don't demonstrate a real understanding of, of it. Because if they did, they'd be more involved in it. Uh, and and this is the area of what is cause and effect? What is this chain of interconnectedness? So when we talk about interconnectedness on the magical level, um, we're talking about trying to get the universe to conspire with us to achieve certain results through ritual, meditation, visualization, what have you. And yet when we're talking about the interconnectedness of the supply chain, and I said to some people, I said, well, you realize if that supply chain shuts down, you know, we're going to feel that in about three months. Anywhere from about six weeks to three months is really when it's going to start to hit. So there's going to be a series of rolling uh, shortages. And I said the things that are going to go first are going to be the things people laugh at. And, of course, what was that? Toilet paper and, 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 and you know, paper towels. And everyone laughed. I said, yeah, but the things that you got to watch for is soap and toothbrushes and toothpaste. Well, now that's what's going through. You have to understand how things are connected. And it's really not rocket science. I think that's my point. This is not rocket science to understand how, how the dominoes are lined up for any society to function. You just have to observe them. Yeah, there, there's a great metaphor here, really, when you're talking about interconnection, specialism or fragmentation. You talk about it in terms of science there, for example, 
uh, someone recently called this guy, I can't remember his name, his surname begins with F, he's big, you know, medical boffin over there with you guys in the US making nightly pronouncements. So this sort of wiry old guy with glasses, I just can't remember mm-hmm. his name, but someone recently wrote a piece about him and called him a learned ignoramus. By that, they were, he's a, he's a doctor. I don't know if he's an mm-hmm. MD. Anyway, but they, what they meant by that was that this guy is very, very clever, but doesn't understand the interconnectedness of things, doesn't understand how systems work. So if he's saying something like social distancing indefinitely or social distancing for 18 months, there is no economy. There is no society with social distancing. You can't do that. It won't work. And this, I, I then was making a connection between that with the materialist view of the universe and specialism in science, just dissecting everything and putting everything into categories and not seeing how it all comes together in a big web of interdependence. Well, you know, I just got a news notice before we started this that oil went below $5 a barrel. So it just came through and I, I noticed and we, I moved on. I'll read it later. Point is, when industries grind to a halt, you don't just start them up again. You know, there's only so much time in which certain things can be idle, whether it's jets and airplanes, uh, whether it's a ship, you know, what, no matter what it is. And what we see happening is a giant experiment in social control that's never been done before. You know, the size of the population of the world, the industrialized world that is undertaking similar policies, not always identical, but similar, in which... uh they are dutifully obeying their governments for, you know, some good reasons. This is a terrible illness. But that's the problem. It's a terrible illness uh, that has some horrific side effects that seems to be killing mostly people who are going to be dying anyway. Here we looked at, because my wife being the biologist trying to understand this, looked at some of the death figures for Pennsylvania, and the most recent ones were all people in their 90s. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's up there. We know there's always exceptions to the rule. But the problem is we have so much effort at different agencies to attempt to control the narrative here that people are confused about what to believe. And they tend to believe one aspect of it. Oh, there's no problem. There's no disease. I don't have to wear a mask. No, you should wear a mask because it's a smart thing to do. Because you're probably not going to get this. But if you do, you don't want it. You see, it's not all or nothing. There's gradations. And this is where we get into general semantics. Even occultists and spiritual people are terrible at general semantics because they enjoy the fantasy rather than the actual cognitive aspect. And for problem solving, you don't solve problems by going to extremes. The area is often somewhere in between in the gray land. So all or nothing rarely is an, all or nothing rarely actually happens in life. But when you're given messages that are constantly all or nothing, or they're emotionalized, and you can't solve a problem by emotionalizing it, and you can't solve a problem by personalizing it, making it about the person or the personality. But what do you see in the media? It's all about Trump's failure at this or that, as if he's personally responsible for all these things. Anyone who's even run a, a, a local nonprofit uh you know, parent-teacher association knows that you delegate. And then, depending on the size of the organization, other things are delegated. Or you see, so it's personalizing. And then it's emotionalizing. It's all fear-mongering. 
hope and fear, hope and fear, hope and fear. If I can just constantly give you hope and fear, I believe it was Napoleon who said the role of the leader is to give hope. You know, we can get you to do almost anything. And I, I don't want this to sound simple, but you know, if you actually take time to study uh, mass media, mass manipulation, uh, general cultism, such as uh, Eros and uh, Ren- Eros and Magic in the Renaissance by Culliano, or uh, some of the works on general semantics or uh, some of the other works that, that have been around on propaganda, uh, and you run, begin to understand that on the most basic level. Um, you know, it's like Wanamaker said about advertising in the 1920s. You know, half of my money is uh, wasted on advertising. I just wish I knew which half. So it's the same way here when you're doing social control mechanisms. Um, and I grabbed that phrase from uh, the works of Jacques Vallée, the, the famous UFO researcher, who, of course, was not an independent researcher. He was hired by the French and the American governments to work with UFOs. I mean, he worked with the people and the government who were doing this stuff. And he referred to those experiences as social control mechanisms. So, in many ways, I'm not going to tell you that this virus doesn't exist. It does exist. And I'm going to tell you it's not dangerous. It is dangerous. The question is, is it as dangerous as we're told? And are the solutions going to be more devastating than the, than the, uh, uh, the, the, the disease? And if they are, who does that benefit? And this is why, you know, it begins to have all the, uh, you know, the duck test of a conspiracy. It quacks like a duck, looks like a duck, you know, walks like a duck, and, and smells like a duck. And, and then we go into the problem of conspiracy is that, you know, is it actually people sitting around a table and making decisions, or is it just people taking advantage of a situation? I tend to think it's, you know, the old notion of never let a good uh, crisis go to waste. People are just taking advantage of the situation. But at the same time, you have an unconscious conspiracy taking place. And this is well documented in a, a book, Images of Man, by the Stanford Research Institute, the wonderful people who did government psychic research and the early Internet and, and UFO research, right? And uh, in the book, it said that really if you, uh, people who have shared values will act in a similar fashion and give the impression as if it was a conspiracy. That's why controlling the narrative, you know, and the long march through the institutions that took place over the last 50, 60 years is so important. Because what has happened is by limiting the discussion, defining what the words mean, you control the narrative, you control the thought process, and fundamentally, people self-police. When I was growing up, most of the men in my family circle were uh, members of a Masonic Lodge, one place or another. And I remember other kids at school telling me that, oh, well, they, you know, it's a conspiracy and it's all very dark and blah, blah, blah. But what it fundamentally was about, as I learned as I got older, was people with shared values coming together because they had things in common for mutual assistance and assistance of others. I mean, thats I was never a member, but that's what I took away from it whenever I had a chance to actually talk to, to members about it, if you see what I mean. But of course, it looks like, uh, uh, as you say, it looks like people meeting in smoke-filled rooms at night. It's like, what are they up to? Well, they might not be up to anything. Or you could be up to, I mean, if I if I go to the store to get some groceries, well, I'm up to getting some dinner, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, it doesn't make it sinister. And I think that's the important point that, you know, the even the notion of the word conspiracy theory is a way of, dis, uh, of dismissing the notion of conspiracy. Conspiracy actually happens. It's a reality. It's on the books. You conspire to commit murder. You conspire for theft. Uh, what we're talking about is people trying to dismiss the notions 
of underlying interactions and causes. So when you look at occultism, and I think it was uh, Reverend Brody Eanes, a uh, member of the Golden Dawn in Scotland, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, it doesn't matter much if the uh, unknown superiors, angels, the clipoth, or elementals exist, the universe acts as if they do. And this is where we're talking about the interconnectedness from, on things, particularly between invisible and visible levels, the interconnectedness. Okay, And there's an interconnectedness on an invisible level that people never see. It's called the Internet. There's an interconnectedness between people that people never see. It's called shared values. So there's a host of these invisible interconnections, these occult connections, hidden connections that take place. And if you know how to trigger them or move into them, they become something which you can then conspire to manipulate, whether it's psychology and advertising or whether it's, uh, again, trying to get out of a parking ticket with the, the right fraternal handshake you know? <laughs> or, or some, you know, but then when we talk about sinister things, I think the problem there is that uh, folks have a very biased view. It's a very imbalanced view. They want to use that as an excuse for not being in control of their lives rather than taking control of their life as they need to. Again, when we talk about reality, the universe, the physical world that we live in, has always been a terribly violent place. Only recently has it been relatively peaceful. People forget that, despite all the wars of the 20th century and all the massive loss of life. I mean, if you look across history, people say, oh, you know, after the plague was the Renaissance. And I said, the Renaissance was a pretty bloody time and place. You know, mm-hmm. there was a lot of warfare going on. So, you know, we, we have certain wonderful advantages to the time and place we live in right now. And it is important that those who claim to be on a spiritual path take full advantage of it because it may not return again for a while. Or if it is to stay, it is up to them to ensure that it stays. It is their responsibility to provide a future, you know, for spirituality. I mean, I hear these folks complaining. You know, a lot of these folks are complaining about boomers and how they fail them and, and there's all this vitriolic uh, hatred towards their parents or grandparents. You know, anyone from like 19, born from 1940 to what is it, about 1960-something, you know, four, five, whatever. And, you know, grow up already. The environment you're in is the one you're in and you have to make the best of it just as anyone did. I mean, you're not getting drafted to hit the beaches at Normandy. Or to go off to Vietnam. So you, you have to take a realistic view of your, your situation. And if you're an occultist, you are saying that you can solve problems. That's a fundamentally what occultism means. Spirituality means you understand yourself. Occultism means you understand yourself and you can solve problems. And, and this is my point, you know, is that occultists now, at this time and place, with this coronavirus, they've got to stand up and show that they're worth something. As far as the question of people, individuals, groups, organizations taking advantage of uh, a crisis situation or actually being the, the originators of a crisis situation, whatever the case, one thing that struck me, the first thing that struck me about this, and I'm still kind of asking questions about it every day, is the question of proportionality. And we're used to governments placing economies before people. Whether it's at the home or abroad, people will be allowed to die, will be allowed to suffer in various ways, 
directly and indirectly uh, for the sake of the economy. You know, the economy really trumps everything. You know, you can hear it said time and time again by politicians on the election trail. Yes, we will have to spend more here on this, that and the other thing, public goods. And we'll have to do this, that and the other thing. But at the end of the day, it's money in your pocket. It's the economy. So in this case, response to the coronavirus thing, it apparently appears to be the opposite. That these colossal multi-trillion dollar bailouts and funds for X, Y and Z and people being put basically on, you know, the dole. Millions of people, is it like 30 million now filed for unemployment mm-hmm. assistance in yeah. the US? I mean, mm-hmm. these numbers are staggering compared to the not only the numbers of people who are dying directly from the virus or, you know, their death has been brought about, has been hastened by it, but just the number of people who die from any cause at any given month. So that led, led me to then think, well, what could this actually be about? If Let's just go down the taking advantage route as opposed to the originating the crisis route. And a couple of things occurred to me, again, not rocket science, people have been talking about this for ages. One was some kind of global financial reset, you know, since the crisis of 08, 07, 08, uh, things have just continued to get in a worse state in terms of, you know, government and corporate finances and debt. And some kind of reckoning was coming. And this either would allow some kind of reboot or provide cover for, ah, well, you know, the reason things are in such a perilous state, economic disaster left, right, center is because of this virus. The other thing that occurred to me, the main other thing was in terms of economy, environment, energy, there had been tremendous strain and pressure on all the big technological, global, industrial systems in which so many of us depend. And those things are under, as I say, tremendous strain. So what this has provided, if not semi-permanent or permanent exercise in, but certainly an example of the scale of the human enterprise being reduced drastically overnight. It's got less people doing less things, consuming less, going less places. Suddenly all that energy and all the the human commerce and interaction, everything just gets reduced down to a fraction of what it was. And that's a way of saying, you know, we can do this or you will do this. Well, I don't think you're ever going to get a direct answer to that, not in the short term. It's going to take a lot of long-term history and digging into to, uh, files to, to find that out, if at all. And, of course, you may have to rely on more uh, in, insights, uh, more clairvoyant insights mm-hmm. that, that, that may not be as testable as you'd like for that. Or verifiable to others. But I always say by their fruits, you'll know them. You know, look at the, look at the results, not the words. Look at the results. And, you know, when we look at the, the action here, you know, it's going to be for me, what is everything like in the fall? Where are we, where are we in September? Where are we, uh, March of next year? That's what I'm going to be looking at. And, the reality is that the extremely wealthy, they're not going to change. They don't suffer much. The wealthy, they'll have some, you know, bit of a hit, but it's not going to matter much. Then you have the, what we'll call the upper middle class. They're going to take a hit. There's going to be a change in their lifestyle and not necessarily uh, a good one because they're also the ones spending a lot of money that employ people in the middle class and the working class. See, this is the downward trend. So now in the people who were middle or struggling to stay middle class, they're devastated. They've just become poor and they know it. 
and they don't know if they can even get back to where they're at. They're hoping they can, and we're going to see three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, what's possible. But when we put everyone on the government dole, it's always, let me say, the hand that giveth is the hand that can taketh away. So the more centralized power and authority you have, the less individual power and authority you've got. And your individuality and your individual responsibility and, to some degree, your wealth, individual wealth, is the basis of your ability to undertake spiritual practice. Do you understand that? It takes a certain amount of stability and certain amount of material wealth, whether it's combined with others, such as in the monastic or a hermitage sense, okay, or, you know, such as a, a commune, or it takes individual wealth in terms of you don't have to worry about, you know, what's going to eat or, or the roof over your head or, or, you know, for the most part, the, the fundamentals. It's like a hierarchy of needs idea, I guess, you know, what you've got mental and emotional space for in your life. That's right. That's exactly it. So people are going to have to make some hard decisions. And, and I wrote about this 15 years ago. I mean, that's why I'm a little energetic about it, if you will. I mean, I said this day was coming. <laughs> Many times I said this day was coming. And now it's here. People are going to have to make some very difficult decisions, and they're not going to be able to blame anyone. Well, I mean, they can't, but ultimately it won't matter, no matter how much you play the blame game. You know, we, what we have to look for is how are we as individuals and how are we as people on the spiritual path going to show that our values matter and our problem-solving values? And then how are we going to come together and show that we can work effectively, at least in our small groups, when that's possible again, when social distancing isn't being uh, so rigidly enforced? And how do we come together uh, to make the world more Effective and functional. Functional and efficient. I don't want to say better, because I don't know what better is. But I know what functional and efficient is. Well, before we finish off today, we will try and leave on a positive note about actions going forward. Recently, I've uh, been reflecting on something that Jung's is what's attributed to him anyway. It's essentially, uh, that which is rejected from the self appears in the world as an event. Anybody familiar with Jung's research and uh, work will, will understand exactly that. There was something from something you published within the last few days. I uh, don't know if it's your words or somebody else's, but it was the archetype suppressed is not an archetype subdued. It erupts elsewhere. Uh, the same sort of sentiment. And as mentioned at the top of the hour, uh, in 2018, we talked about your book at the time, the current one, Egregores, the occult entities that watch over human destiny. So I wanted to get your perspective on what's happening at the minute in the world as Egregore, as what the meaning might be collectively, the origin, what this, what this signifies perhaps, you know, the symbolism, what, what can we glean from this at this point? Um, I know that's a very nebulous, perhaps a very open question, but I don't know really how else to get you started on that. <laughs> no, I, I think it's I think it's a good one. And the, the way we go is something very basic. We start with the obvious. You know, if you're going to be talking about energies and archetypes, you know, they're only good if you can see them happening around you. And if you can see them happening around you, then you, you can get a sense of the energy of the moment, what's happening. And the energy of the moment is Saturn. Okay? It's Saturn. Boom. Poof. Over, full stop. So that's why I've often said over the last two months, 
you've got to get right with Saturn. The age of Aquarius, which everyone was saying was going to be so wonderful, is, you know, Aquarius is ruled by Saturn. You know, it's discipline. It's understanding cause and effect. It's life and death. You know, it's agriculture. Uh, it's ideas, and also the ideas that can be too fixed and rigid. It's not necessarily ideas of enlightenment. It can be a very rigid and fixed uh, notion of, of things, which we see a lot of. So, and we see, of course, the notion of uh, agriculture, too, uh, what an important role that plays. People suddenly have some idea that, you know, where does their food come from? You know, <laughs> you know how am I going to eat? Life and death issues. And that's what initiation is about. And that's why as an initiate, as someone who goes into esoteric practice, you seek to avoid safety. I mean, if you're having a safe initiation, you're not having one. You're having a ritual, you're having an insight, maybe a, uh, an entrance to the club, but it's not an initiation. You know, real initiation is going to, you know, make a permanent change in your consciousness. And for that reason, it has to destroy or grind down, or remove, or make an opening, or transform, if you will, previously held notions that, that, were, that were not necessarily beneficial to you anymore. They may have been at one time, but not anymore. So Saturn is the thing that people have to get right with. You, you've got to get right with this notion of your, what are your limits, what is your mortality, what is your spiritual practice, uh, what is this all about? And then from there, uh, you also go into, since it is restriction, it's no, we're seeing a lot of restriction take place. But the restriction that we're seeing is also an extension of, of uh, not so much personal discipline. See, if you have personal discipline, then you don't need governmental restriction. I don't need the police because I have personal discipline. I don't have to worry about the police. You know? And in fourth, the police, you know, their, their job isn't to protect me either. The, their job is to protect the community. So, I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that. You know, I can't sue them because something happens to me. You know, their job is to protect the community, not an individual. But I have personal discipline, so I'm not too concerned about, you know, getting arrested for, uh, you know, shoplifting or, uh, you know, assault or, or, you know, drunken and disorderly or, or speeding or something like that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Perfectly. Perfectly, of course. Yeah. yeah. But something that... Uh is not necessarily encouraged in our, you know, it's uh, the, the culture perhaps to sum up, uh, certainly it's been increasing in my lifetime is that, uh, you know, someone else's fault, you know, someone else didn't provide this, someone else didn't do this. I was allowed to do this or, you know, society failed me, my family failed me, you know, blame culture basically. Yeah, and all of that may be true, but at the end of the day, you're still responsible for your life and that's the part. Now, along with this notion of resistance is also going to be, what happens when you have too much resistance, too much, con- or too much control, I should say. And that's when you get into tyranny. So along with the res- personal responsibility of self-discipline is the personal responsibility of when do you resist uh, tyranny. And that's what we see people asking that question of for the, for the last you know, 10 years, really, the last 15 years in many ways, as we see the encroachment of the surveillance state after 9-11. Uh, the encroachment of the police surveillance militarization state. Because empires don't collapse, they retract. You know, I mean, in this country, and I'm sure in your country as well, a lot of that equipment, you know, when it came back, if it wasn't left over in the Middle East, when it came back from Iraq, you know, a lot of that surplus went to police departments. 
And some of them needed it, but I mean, none of them around here really need a armored personnel carrier. You no, know, and the problem I, with people is when you give them toys, they want to use them. Yeah, of course. No, I mean, I remember clearly the stories about all that kit coming back to the U.S. Not really the same here because, as you know, the, the police here are not ru- in the U.K. I should say are not routinely armed. There's like a special detail um, deployed on a needs need only basis. You know, if a highly trained specialist, um, if they're required. Uh, so I suspect any of the British uh, armaments that were used in the Middle East and they were too expensive to bring back were probably destroyed in place. <laughs> so you think they were sold? <laughs> oh, okay. Well. <laughs> Knowingly or unknowingly, they were probably sold. But I mean, that's, that's the point is that we, you know, we have this stuff and we have to, we have to look at our experiences and how are we going to respond as an individual? What is my response to this environment that's taking place around me? That's the only question that matters. Not what is happening. That's the first thing. But then after that, how am I going to respond to this? Yes. And that's one thing that, you know, I personally and a lot of people, I, converse with and have exchanges with on a regular basis we're asking ourselves this we've been doing that for a long time of course but now there's a fresh impetus to look again what what we're doing and what we perhaps will stop doing what we will start doing i have always felt very uneasy with large-scale collective movements collective action and i've always felt a certain antipathy towards um activism protest a just it's my a sixth sense it's just some some of the fibers in my being steer me away from that i'm not comfortable with it at all i can't fully account for why um i just think a lot of people go into it unthinkingly together we're stronger whatever it may, may apply in certain cases certain situations but revolutions tend not to end well for the revolutionaries let's put it that way well that's true and i, I mentioned that to someone earlier i said what you the problem is what you have to do is you have to uh trade your elites you know the american revolution was an elites revolting against elites yes and And trade your elites that's a very good expression because uh at the end of the day people want to be led i'm using people they have to be in air quotes exactly so most people don't want to take the responsibility for that they they just want someone they'd rather have someone more benign and you know less tyrannical in a, as part of that elite than not you know they want someone that they that will benefit them most but they don't want to actually stand up and say okay i'll do it well that's right and if you look at the american revolution it was elites revolting against elites and and they had a reasonably good complaint uh you know within you know as i said reasonably uh i think the some of the uh, uh the british may have felt the crown may have felt you know you that they were ingrates and weren't really grateful for what was done for them during the uh, uh, French and Indian Wars, you know, in, in some respect. But at the same time, you know, the taxation issue was uh, one that they were concerned with, and also how the flow of finished goods and, and uh, other economic situations. People have to understand the fundamental basis of the revolution was economic, because without wealth, you can't control your life. Uh, when you look at the... Uh, American Civil War, the fundamental basis of it was economic. And it was, again, elites revolting against elites, okay, in order to maintain what they perceived was their way of life. And that way of life was fundamentally economic, okay. And it could not hold up against the massive, uh, at that time, industrialized machinery of the North. And Great Britain and France were, were, you know, they were paying attention to that. 
unfortunately, they didn't pay enough attention, but they, they did pay attention. Uh, then when you look at the, the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, it was elites, right, revolting against elites. But let's look at the French Revolution, too. Um, mm, things didn't work out too well. Because when you, when you have just the raw anger as the notion of your revolution, rather than some kind of uh, workable substitute, workable uh, option, uh, the revolution doesn't tend to work well, first for the people who are overthrown, and then for the people who are left behind. You know, so when, once you've killed off your elites, then who are you left with? You're non-elites. And, and I, I, this may sound silly to the listener, but think about it. Each one of us in esotericism seeks to be an elite. We seek to be the best person we can possibly be. At least you should be. If you're a writer, a broadcaster, an artist, you seek to be the best you possibly can be. So this notion of egalitarianism is really a false notion. We're not interchangeable. You know, I want the best surgeon I can have. I want the best airline mechanic working on that jet that there is. So we have to encourage excellence, and that means elitism in some way. What we're talking about is the notion of somehow people get to positions of authority and power through corruption, or they stay there through corruption, that it hasn't been earned. And that's probably why, to some degree, the American Revolution was relatively successful because it didn't put in place a massive social control system. You know, the French Revolution, afterwards, it starts with day one. You know, we're reinventing history. You know, the Russian Revolution, it's a massive social control system. And all those communist revolutions across uh, Asia and Europe uh, and, and Central America were, and Africa were massive control systems in, in which everything was going to be managed top down. And... That's the problem that people have what's going on right now as with these massive government buyouts and these massive government decrees is the top-down control, social control mechanism that historically we've seen them happen and they don't go away easily. So people are, you know, they're, you know, they're waiting. They're saying, you know, we've never experienced this before in the United States. You know, in Europe, they haven't experienced it in most of Europe in the living lifetime. Those in Central and Eastern Europe, oh, well, they, they have a living memory of it. Do you understand where I'm going here? You know, so there, there's reason to be concerned when we hand over a great deal of authority and power to the top to work its way down in our micromanaging our day-to-day -day life. Uh, so that's where people rightly get concerned. To say a word about whatever terms you want to use, magic, manifesting, the power of the unconscious, the power of intent, uh, the power of, of words, of suggestion. Again, uh, just a, a few words from something you put online the last few days. Images, mental pictures, and ideas tend to produce the physical conditions and external acts that correspond to them. This explains, at least in part, the power of suggestions or persuasion which so often drive us or which we use even unconsciously. It also accounts for the overwhelming influence of mass suggestions so cleverly and successfully exploited by advertisers and other persuaders. And again, attention, interest, affirmations and repetitions reinforce the ideas and images on which they are centred. Now, any and all of that, 
Um, I want to just get a, um, a thought or two from you in the context of what's going on at the minute in terms of perception, deception, and uh, controlling the narrative, as it were. That Again, we're, this is in relation to people trying to make sense of what's going on and the information that's coming to them from politicians, from the media, wherever. I, I'm not really certain that it is possible for the average person to make sense of what's going on. Because the amount of knowledge that is required would have to have been acquired 10, 15, 20 years ago. And that would need to be in place. Right now, you have people who are just looking, who do I trust? Who do I believe? And just let me know who to trust. And I understand that. I get it. I do. The problem is we're given the impression that we can't really completely trust anyone. And having worked in media and worked with reporters, I can tell you that they're not the best and the brightest don't go into communications. They really don't. You know, I mean, it's, it's what you do when you, you know, couldn't make it as an actor in many instances for broadcast media. So you have to learn to discern for yourself what are the energies of the moment and how am I to respond to them? It doesn't matter whether this came out of a, Chinese weapons laboratory, because I said to someone, you understand, the Chinese military owns these laboratories. So by default, anything that comes out of there is a weapon, whether it's been genetically engineered or not is irrelevant. A pencil is a weapon there. You see how we try to control the narrative, you know, or even how the word nature is used. Okay. Oh, well, now it didn't happen early. It happened maybe back in September. So who do we believe? That's the other part. This is so mercurial. There's constantly mercurial and change that you have to then say, you know what? What do I need to do to keep myself sane and safe? What do I need to do to keep myself safe? Well, I'm going to wear a mask. Okay, get a good one and wear it. You don't want to be exposed. I'm going to keep good hygiene, right? Okay, so that's the first thing. Then what am I going to do to keep myself sane? I'm going to have a good spiritual practice, and I'm not going to think about these things and confuse myself with things that I can't control. So that means I'm going to take control of the things I can control. And those are the first three things to know. Because if you can do that, then you may be open to uh, finding out in the future at some point what really went on and what's really happening. But even if you did find out that this was the worst case scenario whatsoever, I mean, this is a conspiratorial uh, you know, fantasy come to life. Well, then so what? What are you going to do about it? I mean, that's the real question, isn't it? Okay, so this is Big Brother. We're here to stay, and we're just basically going to choke you down until you don't resist anymore. What are you going to do about it? When we frame it that way, that's a whole different question, isn't it? That's a whole different set of answers. Yeah, because if you think as an individual that there's something that you could have done, you know, that whole first day came for the gypsies, blah, blah, blah. Well, it, you're here now. You are where you are, as they say. You work with what you've got. Uh, you know, you start from where you are, et cetera, et cetera. And that is the question, you know, well, how do I react? Or, you know, do I react at all? That's what a lot of people are asking themselves. Well, a lot of people, of course, are reacting and they're not asking themselves anything. <laughs> they're just flailing out, whether it's like mentally, emotionally, physically. Well, let me just point out the word there. It's react. It's not respond. There's a difference. Yeah. Reaction is habituated. It's unconscious. A response is conscious. I mean, the best thing your folks could do right now 
any listener here is, you know, read some psychosynthesis. You know, read, you know, Culliano's Eros and Magic in the Renaissance. Read, uh, let's see, on, on, uh, on language, such as NLP. Uh, and a great book to read would be People in Quandaries by Wendell Johnson. You know, that's a great one uh, on, on semantics, okay? Because how does language shape our awareness? Not just how language is an abstraction, but how does language actually shape what we can see and do? Because we talk about spells and charms and mantras, and yet suddenly we throw that all out the window when it comes to day-to-day life and day-to-day language. It's as if we can separate all that out and just keep that in a book or pull it off the shelf when we need it. No, the real mantra is the language you use day-to-day. That's the real magic language. That's how you shape your perception and actions, and that's how you can shape other people's perceptions and actions. And, and from that, then you decide, okay, I am going to encourage personal freedom and responsibility. And I'm going to do that in my life. Personal freedom and responsibility, regardless of the cost. Because you're going to be dead anyhow. So, you know, don't worry about that. Regardless of the cost. Now you're an initiate, or at least you're aiming towards it. Now you're on your path to adapt to it, rather than just playing at this. And then you're going to get together with other people who have that same value structure. And now you can form a small group of five, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve people who can be an effective cell at change. And also it's about it doesn't take as they always say in these situations, it doesn't take everybody. It could never take everybody because you'll never have everybody. It's whatever it is, five percent, one percent, not point five percent, you know. That goes back to my statement about elites. Mm-hmm. It's always the yeast. You're always going to be working with 5%. And I think, uh, who was it? Colin Wilson did a great piece on that, on about what is the 5%. You're always going to be dealing with an elite group. Always. You have to get that through your head. And occultism is, again, if at nothing else, it's about personal excellence and elitism. Okay? So it's just a matter of what do you do with those skills that you develop? What do you do with that knowledge that you develop? You have to decide that this is something... Um, that you're going to use not just for yourself, but as best you can to help others. So you have to decide you want to be part of, uh, or at least have some say in the direction the future is going. And that's going to mean personal sacrifice and cost. Yeah, and I think sometimes people feel, even if they understand what you've just been saying, uh, been putting it into practice, that they feel probably understandably to some extent how can i possibly influence that i think perhaps sometimes avenues for influence we individuals don't always understand their own potential power to influence things uh perhaps there can be unexpected ways that can be done in unexpected times and i think certainly at the moment potentially we're living in as much as things may feel feel quite fixed uh, for some perspectives, quite controlled, you know, getting tighter, that there's a lot of stuff swirling around there at the moment, a lot of energy. Uh, I think there, whatever way you color it, there's a lot of potential. Right now, there has never been a greater potential for spiritual movements to make an impact than there is right now. And 
It's just a matter of them deciding to do it, and that's going to be individuals decide to do it. An individual decides to talk to another individual, and that decides to talk to another one, and they get a small group together, and then they decide they're going to somehow reach out to other people in some fashion. And whether it's a show like this or their own thing or whatever they post on social media or who they write to or whatever they produce, that's how it's done. And it's going to now be in a matter of being a viable example and leader. A viable role model. Someone's got to step up and say, you got to be like me. Now, maybe not in those words, but that's what's going on in the back of people's heads. They look at you and they may, rightfully so, by their fruits, you shall know them. This is now when it's time to move. So if you have people out there who get together with a group of people, even if it's virtually, form your study circle, your coven, your lodge, do it virtually. Until you can get together again. Here at the Institute for Medic Studies, twice a day, 7 a.m., 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and it doesn't just have to be then. You can do it anytime you want. We have people doing the Liturgy of Hermes. And that's uh, a personal liturgy. It's designed for personal retreat. However, in this instance, it becomes a collective mechanism. It becomes uh, an egregore. And it's a nice one because you can get out of it just as easily as you get into it in a sense. It's not like a you know, like a, a philosophical notions with restraint. You know, it doesn't have those control mechanisms that we think of. But the idea is, is that that hermetic notion, that notion of Hermes and Toth and all these powerful and positive values, you know, so it's, it's a, a, an umbrella, if you will, more of an umbrella egregore rather than a micro one, a small one, is constantly there and being fed by people. And that means people who aren't doing the Liturgy of Hermes but are interested in hermeticism and alchemy astrology and, and have a notion of that word – they can benefit from that too. And the notions of freedom and responsibility that come with it. People can do things like that. I don't want to live in some kind of social credit system where I get points for being a good boy. I don't want to have to take a vaccine in order to travel internationally. I don't want to live in a cashless society. I want to choose how to pay people and how to be paid. I don't want to live on government dole, universal basic income, to sit at home and plug into tech and smoke pot or whatever. I'm not going to do any of those things. I can avoid it. I don't want that for anyone else unless they want it for themselves. And so that's what I've been doing. And I'm not alone in that. So, and that's at this point in time, I'm reaching out to people like yourself, even just to, just to have a conversation like this, to just put thoughts out and see what comes back. Well, you know, that's something that has to gain momentum because if it doesn't, then the only way it will be, see, will be stopped from happening is through violence. And, um, you know, there comes a point where people decide this is worth, uh, you know, fighting for, which means it's worth killing for and worth potentially dying for. And we have some trouble with that in esotericism in the West uh, because, but we tend to forget that, you know, even the great Comte de Saint-Germain, the alchemist, led armies. You, you, some, you know, our notion of right and wrong can be overly rigid. Again, you stated that your police, you know, they have very limited uh, firearms. And at the same time, you know, when you look at some of the crimes and the types of crimes that take place over there, you know, the, it's nice to say no one has firearms. But it also means they can't protect themselves either. Because the guy using a knife on you, he doesn't care clearly about gun control or weapons control. It doesn't matter. So a lot of these notions that we have in terms of human interrelationship and human values uh, are very tricky. 
And uh, the best thing is we want to get the best possible ideas out there now. We want to get them solid. We want to get them strong. Individual responsibility and freedom. Personal responsibility and freedom has to be the focal point if you want to keep that kind of super overarching international uh, surveillance state from taking place. And you have to be willing to die for it. And that's where people fail. They're willing, you know, they're not really willing to dedicate their lives to creating something new or possibly dying in the process. And that's going back to what we said earlier about initiation. Initiation is dangerous. It's not safe. So you have to give up all notions. To be personally responsible and free, you have to give up all notions of safety. Well, Mark, I think that might be a very apposite point on which to conclude our conversation for today. Now, if people want to find out more about your work, your books, for example, publications, they can just stick your name, Mark Stavish, into any of their favorite search engines. Before we sign off, uh, share your website with listeners and any other information you'd like to put out there about resources, etc. Institute for Hermetic Studies. And our web is hermeticinstitute.org. If you just Google Mark Stavish or Institute for Hermetic Studies, it'll come up. Email us. We'll send you information about our classes, our courses, our online studies, and a whole new line of audio and video teaching uh, tools that we've uh, started producing to help people in this lockdown situation. And uh, they are very good. Uh, they're, they're not like anything you've had before. We just finished a six-week class on uh, German folk magic as the gateway to understanding folk magic, renaissance magic, and even classical and medieval magic. And uh, it was very well received, and uh, we hope to get it up and available within the next few weeks. We're getting, editing it out so it looks nice and clean for the viewers. But there was a lot of material in there, and we also have a lot of audio programs that are available too. And uh, we have some on YouTube. They have been uh, someone vandalized them a while back, and we're trying to get them repaired. But at least someone you can still go there and get a taste of some of the audio programs and what we have to offer. And all of that material, all of those audio programs are fully transcribed and edited, and you can find them on uh, Amazon. Wonderful. Well, once again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us again today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much.